Hi everyone, Emily here. I'm so excited to talk about our partnership with Deskrits. Deskrits is truly the insider's guide to the ARE. Made by two young architects who recently passed their exams, the book breaks down all six exams into topic outlines and reading lists with specific pages to study from outside resources. For me, the hardest part of the ARE was figuring out what to study. I've used Deskrits personally as a study guide for my last four exams and couldn't recommend it enough. It's easy to follow, graphically pleasing, which is very important to us design people, and it's very thorough, not vague at all. My personal favorite are the Deskrits study sheets that cover objectives of each test in a super manageable way. The sheets only cover key topics, so you don't have to worry about sifting through any excess fluff. If you're interested, go to Deskrits.com and use code OPP15 for 15% off. Happy studying! Hey everyone! Hey everyone! I'm Emily. And I'm Maria, and this is the Open Plan Podcast. We're excited to have you here. Join us in navigating life and architecture as young professionals tackling career, education, social lives, and everything in between. Keep up with us on Instagram at Open Plan Podcast. So now let's get into it. Hello everyone! Welcome back to another episode of the Open Plan Podcast. Um, today we're gonna keep this really short um, because we have a really great interview. Um, Emily, why are we interviewing Kate? <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back. I'm so happy to have you. We are interviewing Kate because she offers a perspective on architecture that's very different than what we typically hear. Um, we wanted to give exposure to all the different things you could do with architecture. So she actually went down the historic preservation route um, and also, it writes on the side. So we're just kind of talking about out breaking outside the traditional mold, what you think an architect is, and she's definitely doing that. Um, it's very inspiring. She's doing multiple things at the same time um, and is very passionate about what she does. So Kate Regev is a New York-based design and construction project manager, architect, historian, and educator with a love for buildings, old, new, and everything in between. For more than a decade, she has been working with cultural, civic, and educational institutions to meaningfully and strategically research, advocate for, renovate, maintain, and expand their buildings. She currently works in project management at Zubatkin Owners Representation after working at several architecture firms in New York City, where she worked on projects that contribute meaningfully to the public space, including the New York Public Library, the Frick Collection, the Hispanic Society Museum and Library, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Kate is also an adjunct assistant professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, where she teaches in the preservation program. She also lectures about preservation and architectural history across the country and writes about design for Architectural Digest, Dwell, and other industry publications. She's the author of a regular column in Inc. for online platform Madam Architect. She holds a Master of Architecture and a Master of Science in Historic Preservation from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Arts in Architecture, cum laude, from Bernard College. So let's get into it. All right, guys. So we're here in this, our virtual studio with Kate Regev. Um, you've already heard a little bit about her. Um, we're so grateful for you to be here this morning. Um, welcome to the Open Plan Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so we uh, have been kind of uh, keeping up with her 
columns on Madam Architect, and and that's kind of how we uh, discovered her. Um, but she works primarily in historic preservation. So to get this started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day at your work and how you work in historic preservation and what are some of the responsibilities of that versus a traditional architecture job? Sure. So so um, I have kind of, like you mentioned, I have a specialization in working with kind of historic and existing buildings. Um But in the past year, I transitioned from working at a traditional architecture firm to actually working on behalf of clients and owners managing um, their projects and design and construction. And so for most of those projects, I'm still working with existing buildings and and often historic buildings, Um, but I'm doing less of the design and more of the managing the projects. So... Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my typical day will include anything from kind of site visits and being in person at these buildings um, to um, kind of having, you know, weekly meetings with clients, updating them on where projects are, um, how things are moving, any issues we might be having and kind of troubleshooting with them kind of one on one, um, how to keep things moving according to schedule and budget. Um, And then I often have kind of either... Uh, meetings with the consultants for a project. So that could be the architects and the engineers, could be other um, consultants that are direct to the owner. So that might be, or the client. So um, that might be, you know, um, a geotechnical engineer or a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a project with a lot of furniture and FFE, that could be with their purchasing agent. Um, so it's kind of a lot more of kind of the the big picture of how a project gets done from way way start of the project like even before you onboard an architect or anyone else um all the way through the end like you you help them pick a contractor you stay on board through construction and then you stay on also typically through kind of commissioning and making sure that the building is running as it's supposed to so um it's funny you know i I have kind of a specialization in working with these historic and um, existing buildings, but um, recently I've zoomed out in my career to look at the whole project rather than just kind of the design phase. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think, um, so you're acting almost as like a, a rep- representation for the owner, the liaison. Um, and I think that's something that we learn about, um, like, for example, in the practice management architecture exam, I'd immediately think of the owner's rep and how that's a very uh, real role that we don't hear much about. We always hear the traditional architect, but there's so many other things you could do with architecture. Like, you know, on behalf of the owner, you want to have their best interests in heart. You want to make their schedule and budget on time, as you were saying. And I think that's really interesting for our listeners who want to go down that route of, you know, maybe more of the project management side and maybe they're more I don't know, is a left brain or right, I guess, right brain, (laughs) where like you're more of the organization. And that's something that I've actually been recently doing in my role, kind of shifting to more of a project manager position. And I've been really liking it. So I'm really glad you're on and can shed some light on that role. That's really Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, I, I mean, I still love design. And I I would say I miss Mm -hmm. it too. But um, I did find that, um, a lot of the time, it's really the client who makes a lot of the major design decisions. And so, you know, at my previous firm where I was working as an architect, I I started in more of like a traditional architecture design role. 
I grew and became kind of a project architect. And then I shifted actually to project management. Um, and from there, I realized that maybe moving to project management directly for a client or like you say, so actually I do work for an owner's representation company. Um, and I realized that was, I think, probably the next right move for me in my career. So you're not alone. We're out there. Um, but it is, it's it's using kind of a different part of your brain sometimes. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. But having the architecture background, like you bring so much value to that. And you must. understand mm-hmm. like the building and the, I think the historic significance of it too. I was going to ask, like, are you involved with a scenario where like the building is going to be torn down or something and then you're trying to like not get it torn down you're like trying to find the historic value of the building at all like is that like that's pre sometimes. or is that more of like activists you know yeah i mean sometimes it's also about you know because i'm not directly the client but sometimes part of my job is educating the client and mm-hmm. that's not because they're not knowledgeable, but sometimes people don't even realize like what an exciting asset to a community or, you know, to a street or, or an area that they have. And so sometimes, you know, it's part of my job to, to share with them my knowledge and expertise in that way. Um, and it's funny because even though I don't do that really so much day to day, I would say sometimes I do. Um, but a lot of the time, because I mainly work with kind of cultural institutions, a lot of the time the owners already have a sense of um, Mm -hmm. what they're working with. Um, But I do have one project now where it's like a building from the seventies and the clients are very, um, have mixed reviews about working with a building from the seventies. It's like, it doesn't feel new and exciting to them. It feels really seventies, but some people love that and some people don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's trendy right now. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's like, it's very seventies, um, lots of like stone on the outside and kind of concrete, both precast and cast in place. And, um, and so for me, it's really interesting. And I think for them, you know, some people love it, some people hate it. And part of my job is to kind of let them know, you know, for this building type, it's very unusual um, to have this style. Um, And, and there's a lot that you can keep um, within this style, but still make it feel fresh and new. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's definitely part of my role. But I think I should also mention that I um, I teach at um, Columbia's preservation program. And the heart of one of the assignments that my students do, and in fact, their final kind of cumulative assignment for the semester is to um, kind of give an argument for the significance of a building um, that mm. they've selected. So, you know, I do it sometimes at work, but it's definitely still part of my kind of day to day, or I guess my couple times a week, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people about that. That's awesome. That's so great. what kind of sparked your interest in historic preservation and both pursuing it kind of as a career, but also teaching in that field? Well, so, you know, I, I studied architecture in undergrad, um, but I went to a liberal arts school. Um, I went to Barnard College here in New York City. And so it, um, I had a really broad education um, and I loved the kind of the, the design and the spatial aspects of architecture, but I also loved history. Um, my dad's from Israel and I grew up spending a lot of time there and I loved kind of being surrounded by um, old buildings and, and 
really seeing history come alive. And so when I was in college and I was studying architecture, I was kind of shocked that, you know, historic buildings were only used kind of as um, for historic purposes. Like you would learn about them in your history class or maybe as precedent, but never in any of my architecture studios were we asked to work with an existing building. Mm, um, yeah, that is a shame, especially in a, in colleges in old cities, you know, like in New York or Philadelphia, you know, you would, you would so think much that would... to look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and the funny thing is too, is that, you know, almost all architects, regardless of where they are at some point are working with an existing building. Maybe it's not like super historic and really of the same importance, but you know, even if you work at a small residential firm, so much of the work that people do are additions to those existing homes, you know? So I was just kind of like confused by like why all my projects had to be new construction. Um, (laughs) and, And in my senior year, I took one class it was at the graduate school that was about new additions to historic buildings. And that kind of like opened my mind up. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so interesting, but also I'm exhausted. Um, and I want to like go and do something else for a little bit. So I actually moved abroad for a few years. Um, I lived in Spain. I traveled a bunch. I, I taught English um, at public schools. And, and that gave me the opportunity to, to travel more, to learn languages and to see more kind of, historic architecture, but also kind of um, different ways of working with existing and historic buildings. You know, there was a lot of really exciting additions and renovations and adaptive reuse projects um, in Barcelona where I was working. And so that kind of really pushed me to to kind of further my interest in the topic and then to, to go to graduate school for a dual degree with an MARC and a, a preservation degree. That's awesome. Um, what, uh, I guess for our listeners who are interested in pursuing a historic preservation degree, you know, whether it's in their master's or certificate, um, what, what's the courses like for that? I, I feel like I've heard in some, sometimes it's like a little bit sciencey cause you're like, kind of like, you know, I guess maybe geotechnical almost. It's like, you gotta know the soils and I don't know. I'm curious too, what exactly the difference, I guess, the curriculum between yeah. that and a traditional degree. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. You know, for, I think it depends. <clears throat> on what you your interests are. So I definitely had friends in, when I was in graduate school in the preservation program who were um, studying chemistry. And that was never my thing. Um, that was probably like my least favorite class in high school. And so people who were st- who studied chemistry needed it for um, kind of material science. So there's mm-hmm kind of within the umbrella of preservation, at least at at Columbia, where I studied, um, there were kind of a couple of different specific concentrations you could go into. So there was kind of the the design and architecture side. There was more um, policy, which could be advocacy, and then also Mm. kind of working with governments. And Mm. then there was the conservation side, which was really materials focused. And so for that, you would want to learn about, you know, the chemistry of certain cleaning products and how they work with certain different types of stone and different materials and um, and also kind of the really technical information about how to repair certain things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's kind of within this specific kind of niche um, within kind of architecture, there's a couple of different concentrations which pull in other different disciplines 
which I think is really nice because it makes it for a really kind of complex and well-rounded um, thing to study. Yeah. yeah. That's, <clears throat> that's like, I don't think that's something that people really think about when they consider architecture as a, as a field, because there's so much you can do. We talk about this all the time. Like, and I think that's some, that's what's interesting about this interview in particular, because people are not aware of all the different routes that you can take and you can go the super technical route. Like how do you, rest- it's like restoring paintings. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. Um, we don't really, I, I guess not every school has that, um, you know, opportunity for, for taking classes in that uh, realm. So maybe that's something if you're interested in this and you're listening to this, <laughs> um, definitely look into the schools because that could be something that can really make you choose one or the other, right? Like if they have the opportunity to learn like the chemistry of mm-hmm. ancient tile, like that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I actually, a number of people in my class when I was in graduate school who did that kind of focus on conservation, they had either art history or kind of studio art background. So they were so familiar already with some of the products that are used on a building. Um, and like, if you think about it, you know, a lot of historic buildings also have integrated artwork. So they have like murals mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so that that is kind of this middle ground between, you know, art conservation and kind of architectural conservation. And so mm-hmm. um, I think it does bridge a lot of different um, kind of disciplines all at the same time. Yeah, oh, that's super interesting. A lot of teamwork happening and thought that goes behind preserving these buildings mm-hmm. that's so cool um yeah so I feel like you are a great example of all the different routes you could go in architecture and kind of you know shifting to your writing um we'd love to dive into um how you got into writing and for our listeners um we we did mention this in our bio about Kate but she's written for Architectural Digest well um and it has a regular column of course on Madam Architect so yeah, we we just want to get back to like how did you start writing at architecture, um, and kind of how that interest sparked. Yeah, well, you know it's funny because when I was in undergrad, I didn't think that I was such a great writer. You know, I mean, there are people who are English majors and they like wrote yeah. books and stuff like that. Architects <laughs> architects not... can't write. That's a that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind writing, but like writing a paper is not really my favorite thing. Yeah. Um. But it's funny, like once I got to graduate school, it really shifted. And I realized that because I had this liberal arts background, I was a lot more comfortable writing papers than people who came from more technical schools and maybe like a five-year program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously there's nothing wrong with either background, but I just realized that I liked writing more than I thought I did once I didn't have to read like eight books and, you know, and when is something you like, I wonder why, (laughs) you know? Um, And so, you know, I realized that I kind of like doing a lot of research and, um, and, and kind of putting those different pieces together. I think that was another strong component of the preservation program was doing research on historic buildings and then, you know, presenting that either in paper format or in kind of like a public forum. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of like doing that throughout school. And when I graduated, I mean, most people I think in the architecture world are familiar with this, your pay isn't so great. And you have some student loans, usually. Um, And so I was kind of looking for something kind of flexible that I could do 
when I had some time, usually in the evenings or sometimes on the weekends, um, where it would be still related to architecture and design, but I could make some money on the side. Um, Mm -hmm. And like moonlighting for another firm just seemed a little too risky. So mm-hmm. I, I basically, I saw Dwell, you know, had a post at some point saying they were looking for writers. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll email them. Um, and I did. And it just kind of started there and snowballed. And over time, I realized that I really, I really, really like it. It's, um, it's a great way to use a different creative tool to talk about space and design. You know, words are just a kind of another tool to of creativity and um and it's a lot of fun you know you get to look at a lot of spaces and design with a critical eye um and and just kind of have fun you know thinking about you know how you can describe something um and then you know for madame architect i guess i had been in touch with julia for a while and was involved kind of with when she initially started madame architect and at some point she just reached out and she, cause kind of, we knew each other. She knew my background and she proposed the idea of a historic column for Madame Architect. And I just, I loved the idea. Um, I always like trying to get, you know, history and preservation to a broader audience so that they can mm-hmm. connect with um, the past and make it connect to today. And I think that's, you know, Julia does such a good job of that. And she, she kind of, helped me get this platform or she gave me this platform on which to, um, to do that. So, so that's kind of how all of that came together. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Two things. First of all, it's really refreshing for someone to talk about a practical side of, we don't make a lot of money in architecture and (laughs) things need to, you know, we need to adjust. Um, because I feel like so many people talk about it as if like, Oh, you know, I were I went to school and then I interned for free for like this star architect and it's fine. No, <laughs> Lived it's in New not. York City somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's really refreshing to hear that and like it's totally a thing and it's a valid choice and it's completely something that is available to all of us. Like we that's kind of what we're trying to do with the podcast. Um it was never intended to like generate revenue, but um Obviously, it has the, the opportunity to do that as well. Um, but it's also like another way to kind of talk about architecture or still be within the industry, but kind of use a different space of our brain or not be like stuck in Revit all day. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right. point, you're so, going to have to talk about your projects anyway, whether it's with, you know, your colleagues or a client. And I just, right. it's such an important skill to be able to talk about design. And I think also, if I'm honest, when I was in grad school, you know, my presentation, the actual part that I spoke and delivered was like the last thing that I threw together yeah. on like a random piece. We don't prioritize it. Although yeah. the previous person is going, you're like, I'm going to talk about this. Exactly. Yeah. And it's crazy because what you say, or I guess, you know, also what you would write is just so impactful on how your project is received right. and understood. And so whether it's speaking about it on a podcast or, you know, writing about it for an architectural journal. I mean, it's just, it's so invaluable. And I, I totally agree. It's a, a piece of the kind of design world that's not thought about too often, especially in traditional architecture schools. Yeah, I think it was so, one of the reasons we started this podcast was because we took one specific class that was 
how to make money in architecture. <laughs> um, and it was taught by an, a non-architect. And that was when we realized probably what in the last year of grad school that, wow, we have more to offer. <laughs> I was going to say, like, we have, make more money yeah. in architecture. Don't be an architect. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Like we have so many other skills that we can leverage in different ways still within mm-hmm. the industry or not. Like it, the the foundation that this degree gives us is is very versatile so like we can really apply it to anything yeah so beyond drawing really, yeah yeah, mm-hmm. sure. yeah and it's so true that i feel like almost like close to almost as important as the design is selling your project because yeah. you could have the best design in the world and that's in the studio or in the real world but if you can't talk about it or communicate about it it's like no it's one's going to believe it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all marketing and it's something that we need to flex more. So yeah, we're huge advocates of learning to communicate. Like we wanted to do it through the podcast. We love seeing people writing about architecture. It also gives more exposure to the industry in general. We always joke that people think we're like these mythical creatures, like architects, like <laughs> we're already like a small percentage of the career population. And then it's <laughs> like, what do you actually do? So we love that you're writing about it and um, giving us more exposure. Yeah. And also the different parts of architecture, the whole historic side people don't know about. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I think with Madam Architect, you're in a way like I think there's something about the the actual interviews that Julia are, is doing. And like in a way she's creating this whole like track record like this this history of its own right like of, of documenting all these women um and what they're doing in the industry but also with your column it's interesting because they're very like women centered the one that i liked the most was the maternity ward article <laughs> that was so interesting and and i was like wow this is like no one's like this isn't this wasn't i couldn't read this before she wrote this column like it would have taken me so long to do this research and I it's not anything that I've ever even thought about we'll link it in the show notes yeah yeah we'll link it (laughs) I will say that like that was just like so I'm I'm a mom I had my daughter a year and a half ago and it was it just occurred to me because that you know all of the spaces that women traditionally have given birth to in the past I would you know probably since the 1920s and 1930s all those spaces were designed by men. I mean, with the exception mm-hmm. of more recently, but it's just like, it was just so crazy to me that like women had no real say in this place where they were doing something so incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that that's actually one of my favorite pieces too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think like, I, I don't know, maybe this is on purpose that you're focusing on like kind of women centered stories with the combination of the historic side. So it's, it's pulling all these things that no one knew about, like that we don't have access to. Um, And I think that's fascinating. And with like the women's uh, international women's day where like all of the, a lot of the architecture firms or other organizations are pulling these stories from early, like really, you know, the first women architect or like people, Mm -hmm. the women that were behind these architects that, like they did all the work or they had equal, you know, um, stake in the firm or whatever it was. And it's, I think it's so important to document that stuff um, and now have that kind of platform to, to reference. So that's, yeah, 
We love it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just so grateful that Julia, you know, she kind of trailblazed the whole thing and, um, and just my, my mission and kind of my interests really align with just kind of giving a voice to, you know, early women and minorities in architecture who have not gotten really their fair share of attention. Um, and who people think didn't exist until like the eighties or nineties. And that's just not true, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I feel really lucky that there are people who care about this, but also just that the the platform to, to talk about it and write about it exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's something like, I think it was Pascal Sablon that talked about this, how that when you look up, uh, like great architects, it's all, you know, just white men because there's just not data in the internet yeah, it's not searchable <laughs> combines, it doesn't have the buzzwords right that it doesn't polls. combine yeah yeah black architects with great or with you know beautiful pieces of architecture same with women like it's just we need to kind of make up for lost time in a way mm -hmm. um because they were there yeah <laughs> it's just that they weren't getting any of the press exactly <laughs> right exactly mm-hmm Okay. Yeah. Um, so to wrap it up, uh, what advice do you have for others that are in the architecture industry and want to start writing or even if they are interested in this kind of historic preservation side of the business? I mean, I would say, you know, what you both have already been saying, you know, it's okay to think out of the box. I definitely felt like I was... Um, unique in school because I was interested in working with historic buildings. Um, but I think that people who were deeply interested, for example, in sustainability, for example, and they wanted their studio projects, for example, to focus on something like that, we were often guided to not focus in that way. And I really think that that was just the wrong move. And I think it was too bad because... Um, Really, we, we need people in the industry who have these deep focuses and um, really technical skills, just as much as we need people who have like the grand design vision. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, I graduated feeling like I wasn't um, not, not quite a failure, but I felt a little bit like if I didn't get a job at one of like the top five most exciting firms in New York City, um, then why did I go to Columbia and I wasn't good enough? And that is absolutely not the case, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think about that from a creativity standpoint, from a technical standpoint, and frankly, from a financial standpoint. Wow. Um, you know, when I graduated, I took a job where they gave me the salary that I thought I, that I asked for, which um, was fine, but like, can't really live off of, in New York off of that. Um, and um, I remember I got an interview at a more exciting and well-known design firm. I went to the interview and they were like, well, you know, here's the thing. We can pay you $10,000 less than what you're already making, but you're welcome to join us. What? <laughs> I love that you said this because I think the the drawback with these architect firms is that they think they could pay you less because your your their name is now on their resume and they use that almost like kind of weaponizing a little bit just kind of like oh but that's excuse for us to pay you less because you're you can't pay your rent just here. tell your landlord yeah. that you work for us <laughs> right i was like oh great um i love you guys but i'm gonna have to say no 
And that was hard yeah. for me, but realistically, I just, I couldn't see how I could make it work. And also if yeah. I'm honest, I felt insulted. I was like, I don't think yeah. you understand yeah. what you're You asking. still have your value. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like people definitely take those jobs for the name and then take the pay cut. But at a certain point, it's like, especially in New York and these like high cost of living places, it's like, how? Like, how are you expecting people to live on that? There needs to be some financial backing from someone else. I don't know. Like something is happening here. Yeah. Just, you know, it was like kind of insulting and I'm sure they didn't mean it to be that way. But needless to say, it showed to me that that was not the right place for me. Um, and I just, I want to really encourage people to feel like you don't need to work at um, one of these kind of star architect firms in order to be a great architect, be a creative thinker, to be a really great designer. That type of work happens in so many different environments. Um, and what I've also learned too is like, it's okay to start at a job, be there for a year, learn what you can and move on. Mm -hmm. I've done that a few times in my career. And um, I will say that, you know, to graduate and expect to be at the kind of firm where you will be for the rest of your career is just unrealistic. Um, you know? I think that's an outdated thing too, for sure. So I'm glad you're saying that too, that it's an opportunity for you to explore what you're actually interested mm -hmm. in too and not committing your life's work to this one firm, which I really think that used to be the narrative yeah. and is shocking for maybe the older generation to see that we're not maybe a sold <laughs> like okay like I am this is it for me you know make a career in one, yeah. one yeah. Term. Well, yeah. there's so much else out there and it's totally fair to to see what you like so yeah exactly and I think the other thing I would just say is that you know um the traditional architecture school so heavily emphasizes um the design of your project but there's like we've been talking about there's so many other significant and critical aspects to the design world, whether that's going into business development and marketing, which is like so creative and so critical. And maybe you're like a really good people person. You love talking to people all day and you don't love spending the day in Revit. <laughs> that could be a great option, you know, and still staying still a spot for you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so I just think that the, you know, the field is so much broader than we are trained to think. Um, and just because you maybe don't end up being licensed or you move into project management or business development doesn't make you any less of um, an architect or a creative person, you know, and I think that's how a lot of us define ourselves. So I think that's kind of the big takeaway for me, too. I love how you wrap that up because it's something that we talk about all the time that you don't have to be the best designer to be a successful architect. I think a lot of people in school feel like I'm not the best artist or not the best sketcher. Like maybe I'm not meant for this industry, but yes, like um, love that you're giving exposure to all the different parts of the industry. So, yeah. And I think school and like your first job or two are a great like opportunity to explore those things. Like we talk about, you know, in student organizations, whatever it was that we were doing kind of not related to studio was always where we were like, Oh, I really like graphic design mm -hmm. or, I really like, you know, the storytelling aspect of, of presenting a project or whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, definitely important to explore all that and not get pigeonholed from from the beginning already into a traditional path if that's not what you want. Yeah, yeah. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. This was such an awesome conversation, and I know it's going to be very valuable for our listeners. Covered a lot of ground. Um, you have a very impressive resume, obviously, but so and so many things to talk about. So 
thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. All right. Um, So I hope everyone enjoyed that interview with Kate. She was awesome. A lot of valuable information in that interview we hope you could take away from. Um, As always, you guys can follow us on Open Plan Podcast on Instagram. Um, Listen to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's about about us, our plug. (laughs) Check our website at openplanpodcast.com Do that too. And if you haven't rated and reviewed us in a while, please do. Every rating counts and yeah give us five stars (laughs) or don't rate at all no i'm just kidding (laughs) thanks guys thanks for listening see you on the next one bye